Church History Matters, Episode 24. God's grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters, uh, fans and church historian-ish buffs. Welcome back. We're sorry it's been a while. My name is Ruben Rosales, in case you've forgotten. <laughs> and I am Joseph Knowles. And we're here today to talk about church Ireland. history. Yes, church history. And, and, and Ireland. And Ireland. And Guinness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we originally thought we would have a, a bit of Irish whiskey, um, but it turns out I don't think I like Irish whiskey. Mm. So I figured beer would be a better option. Yes. And you can't get more Irish than in Guinness. Than Guinness, right? Made stout. in Dublin. Yes, made in Dublin. Made in Dublin. The uh, St. James Gate yeah. Brewery. Yeah. Um, where I got the chance to go. For real? We did. Yeah, when we did the study abroad program in law school, nice. um, which if I had to do over again, I would not do. <laughs> but I did get to do a little bit of travel. Wait, did you have? Is it because of the, you had to pay? Is that why? Yes. Oh, okay. Put it on the. Uh, yeah, the old credit card. Yeah, of course. Why not, right? right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, future me will pay for that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'll be dumb, rich. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of life advice because you come to our podcast or like, don't do that. <laughs> um, but anyway, we flew into Dublin. So if you're in Dublin, even if you even if you don't enjoy Guinness or beer at all, it's it's a really interesting tour to see how everything's made. That's neither here nor there for church I history. I'd love but. to go to Dublin. It is a it's a it's a neat city. It's a neat city. I've been to Dublin, Texas. That's probably almost the exact same thing. <laughs> well, they don't have a Guinness brewery there, no. but they do have the oldest known Dr. Pepper manufacturing facility. Interesting. Yep. That's very interesting. They got these big uh like billboards with ten, two, and four and all those old fashioned commercial uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> um now did they get the uh did they get the um the Guinness Brewery lease deal where they got uh, <laughs> no, they didn't do hundreds they didn't of years. They get the no, 999 no. year lease. No. Oh, that's too bad. They locked they locked that down. Seriously, that was that brilliant. was smart, yeah. brilliant move. Anyway, yeah. Ireland is the topic, um, including our brief segment for this week in church history. And we'll be releasing this episode, Lord willing, on Wednesday, May 12th. Just a couple days before that is May 10th. And that is the date of death of another person from Ireland. And his name is Comgall. That's C-O-M-G-A-L-L. And he founded the monastery in the city where he is buried in Bangor, Ireland. So you've got a Bangor, Maine and a... Bangor <clears throat> might be the other way you'd say it, but right. I think the the Irish pronunciation is, or and the British Isles is more like Bangor. Just a little bit about him. He was um, originally involved in a military career, serving very briefly. There's an anecdote about after he left the military, uh, was released from his military service, and wanted to gain spiritual knowledge uh, from a local teacher, but he was finding that the teacher's life kind of fell short of the standard of holiness that he sought for himself. So he, uh, the story goes that he goes, sets out to teach his uh, teacher an object lesson. He goes and he rolls his coat in mud before his lessons one day, and the teacher rebukes him. Like, how dare you show up in such filthy garments? Well, his comeback he had ready because he'd prepared to do this. He says, is it not a greater shame for anyone to soil his soul and body with sin? So kind of put the teacher in his place and say, nice. hey, buddy, you're not you're not living up to the standard that you expect of us or that we should expect. So, um, Hit him with the Jesus juke. Yes, <laughs> big time. And he goes on to study under another famous Irishman, uh, Finian, um, who is already somewhat famed for his holiness. Um, so then he goes on around the year 559, so we're talking the 6th century that he was living um, founds Bangor, which became one of Ireland's most famous monastic centers. It said that his rule was strict, so at all the monasteries you had like the rule of St. Benedict or a rule of the various orders right. of monks. Um, it was strict, but Franciscan not... Franciscan so, versus... Right, there you go. Benedictine. Benedictine, those were the ones I think <clears> of. <throat> well. 
but it's thought that the, one of the lines from the rule that is considered to be authentic was, this is the most important part of the rule. Love Christ, hate wealth. Mm. So that's a little bit interesting there. Um, and that would go on to be a center where by the time of his death, about 3,000 monks were under his authority, uh, most of those being uh, pupils that were would become famous missionary evangelists. So uh, Columbanus being one of those. We won't quite get to him in this episode, but he's, he's an important figure in Irish church history too. So um, the day that Comgol died was May 10th in the year somewhere between 600 and 603. Mm. Uh, but anyway, early 7th century anyway. All right, that's this week in church history, but we will continue on with the theme of Ireland. Yes. Oh, and with, this is an epi- this is an installment of Heroes and Heretics. Exactly right. So, one, we are going to be discussing the life and history and some myth and some legend of one of the most well-known non-canonical mm-hmm. saints. Mm. And uh, that, that last bit is actually pretty interesting. I think a lot of folks aren't aware that this individual is not a canonized saint. Hmm. At least not recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the the person that we're talking about is St. Patrick. St. Patrick. Yes. Should we do our, our impersonations of <laughs> Irish? I don't know if I'm going to do the, uh, <laughs> the Hans Fine impression. Um, of course, that we'd be referring to the uh, now... Is it infamous or is it just famous? I don't know. I think it's pretty... I don't know. <laughs> It's pr- it's pretty hilarious, whatever oh, yeah, it is. But St. Patrick's Bad Analogies uh, by the Lutheran Satire mm. YouTube channel, which if I don't, if you're listening to this podcast, I would be amazed if you haven't yeah. seen that video. But we'll drop it in the show notes page for you, um, so you can enjoy it with us. We'll get to the analogies a little bit later, but yeah. first we're going to talk about St. <laughs> Patrick's who, life. Who was St. Patrick? Um, when, when was when, St. Patrick? Why was St. Patrick? <laughs> so many questions. Yeah, where should we start? Um, well, let's start with when. Let's start um, with when. That's a good one. Living from around the year AD 385, so very late 4th century, and died on March 17th in the year 461, which is why St. Patrick's Day is celebrated on March 17th, because that's the date that he is believed to have died. And maybe a good way to introduce Patrick is just to give a line from his autobiography, Mm. or a couple lines from his autobiography. And this is the English version he would have been writing in Latin. Of course. Yes. But he writes, My name is Patrick. I am a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. I am looked down upon by many. My father was Calpornius. He was a deacon. His father was Petitus, a priest, who lived at Bonaverne to Bernier. His home was near there, and that is where I was taken prisoner. I was about 16 at the time. So there's so much information out there, guys, about this, the life and legend of St. Patrick. Um, there's, there's so much that you have to sift through in mm-hmm. general just to get to the bottom of actually what is real versus what is myth. Um, but one of the interesting things that I found out in reading one of the uh, books was uh, that Patrick's name, he actually, there was a reason he was named Patrick. Obviously, the, everybody who has a name is named something for a specific reason. I guess there's some that, some exceptions to that in sure. more modern times. Yeah. But <laughs> nevertheless, uh, his first name, Patri- Patricius or Patricius, was Latin. And this is what was to recognize him as a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. But he also would have been named, or at least known by, in his home by his family as I don't know how to pronounce this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna guess Sukat, 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 Sukat something like that, Sukat. Um, so his full name, and and others have have suggested that he possibly had a third name, uh, which is Magonis. Hmm. So his full name would have been Patricius Magonis Sucatus, which is quite a mouthful. Yes. But the Latin there indicating, remember that at the time, and you already mentioned this a little bit, but that part of Great Britain was part of the Roman Empire. Yeah. So the conquering of uh, Britannia, as the Romans would have called it, dates all the way back to Julius Caesar. So Mm. you're talking about the first century BC. Yeah. 500 years before Patrick was alive, or thereabouts, four or 500 years. 
Yeah, there was a lot actually going on during this time too. So a lot that led up to this moment in time, right? So there was the, what are the names? The Goths. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, there was a lot that led up to the fact that led to Patrick actually being able to go. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot that resulted, uh, for example, you mentioned monasticism. Mm-hmm. Monasticism is something that took place during this time. And it's actually, some believe, and I remember reading this during uh, school for church history, was that some believed that monasticism actually helped preserve some parts of Christian teaching. Yes. That's especially a point I want to hit when we get to the third person that yeah. we're going to talk about. Because it's not, if we haven't mentioned that already, we're not, or if we didn't put it in the episode title, which we probably will, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the three patron saints of Ireland tonight. And obviously the most famous of those is Patrick, who we're talking about now. The other two are probably not as familiar to yeah, most so like, people. We're we're going over like a a, a trinity of mm-hmm. of uh, Irish saints with Patrick obviously is the Beyonce right. of the three. <laughs> you got the Kelly sure. and the uh, I forgot the other ones, <laughs> which is appropriate because yeah. I mean two out of three you probably remember in the third. Yeah, like, oh, what was that? Never name? ever heard of him what before. Was that name again? Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, right. In, I don't know if you call it the peak of the Roman Empire. You've already had the split between East and West, um, and you're about to get the invasion of the Germanic tribes that will start to happen and eventually lead to the fall of the Roman Empire right around this same time. But in the midst of all that, Patrick is walking along the coast in the Isle of Great Britain there. Well, it wasn't Great Britain yet. Um, England, or although really it wasn't even England yet. Um, it was Britannia still. And he's not just taken prisoner He's kidnapped, and he's not just kidnapped. He's kidnapped by slave traders mm. and sold into slavery. I remembered now my the thing I was going to say. Ah. It, I went out, and this is my fault. I put it bad, I put it in the bad order in the notes, <laughs> so it's my fault. But that uh, there were organized communities in Gaul mm-hmm. in the second century. Now, for those that are unfamiliar, Gaul is um, basically France, right? Lower regions near the Mediterranean parts of France. And there were organized community and communities in Britain at the end of the third century, but in neither of these countries, it would seem, did the religion of Christianity begin to spread widely until its official recognition by the Emperor Constantine. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is one of the things that affected the Goths and how they saw missionaries mm-hmm. and even those in Ireland because of the, the prestige of the Roman Empire. It gave such kind of clout. Mm-hmm. It's like... I think somebody even made the statement like, oh, it is good to fear the God of Rome mm-hmm. because of the Romans, because he, you know, it goes well for those people. Right. So there's a little bit of that at play here. Obviously, Emperor Constantine making it the faith of the empire. Mm-hmm. So all or, this is going on kind of in the background. To be more precise, Constantine legalizing it. Yeah. And then his predecessor or his uh, successor making it like right. everybody's Christian now. In yeah. Rome. Yeah. Because it's that's an easy one to get mixed up because it's so often yes. it's just smushed together. It all happened very close together in time. But yeah, so Patrick is taken prisoner. He's made a slave. He's working by some accounts out in the country in the middle of Ireland. They have to know what Ireland looked like at the time. There really weren't any cities like population right. centers. So it was all very spread out. You had kings, um, but they were very localized. Mm-hmm. So he's out in the country, not really near anything. It's really interesting, too, when you think about these time periods, how, I don't know, what there's no electricity either, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much that's not there. It's like yep. such, such, such such a contrast from what we, like even going camping, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Even going camping, we have so many different things that we like to oh, yeah. boil ourselves mm-hmm. with. But another thing that needs to be considered is that for Patrick... His father was the deacon mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic Church. Right. So an ordained deacon would have been very well schooled in the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so Patrick, the 16-year-old youth, would have probably already gone through, I'm assuming, I haven't, I don't, I gotta, I gotta do the history of the Catholic Church, when they started doing different sacraments, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where the sacramentalism began to really right. take hold. But at 16... He's just about gone through all of the teachings of the church right. at that point. And he does, and 
I don't have it in my notes here, but I know from from previous readings and in classes that uh, that he wrote about that how he, yeah. he remembered um, Bible pass in his imprisonment in his enslavement he would remember Bible passages yeah. and, and songs and these kinds of things. And those, he wasn't a Christian. Right. Not, he, he would admit he was not a professing yes. Christian at the time right. of his enslavement, at the time of his capture. Right, exactly. Um, but he did, that teaching was still there, mm-hmm. and it brought it to mind. So he's, he's there for several years, held in slavery, and at a certain point he, he uh, hears a voice that tells him, well, you're going to go back to Britain yeah. soon. And then on a second occasion, he hears, I guess... Who is the voice? Well, he's going to say it's, you know, it's the voice of God. Yeah. Um, and then the voice, you know, God speaks to him again and says, well, you're going to go to the coast and there's going to be a boat there waiting Your for you. Your boat is ready. Yeah. Yes. So he, he obeys the voice and he flees to the coast. 200 which, miles? Right. Sure? Yeah. 180, which, I think is what I said. Yeah. So a, a very substantial journey. And when he gets there, there's a boat waiting. I mean. How long would that have taken, right? You're talking, I mean, he, I don't know if he ran yeah but walking that yeah. must have taken i mean that's a long journey yeah that's weeks yeah several weeks yeah. Like, i don't know on, on a i mean assuming you're walking at a decent pace you're gonna be walking about two three miles per hour mm-hmm. at least three miles an hour i would imagine pretty comfortably that's a pretty but then there's terrain you have yeah. no idea what i mean yeah and he doesn't know exactly where he's going other than to just follow the, or Go to the rising sun in the yeah. morning, and eventually I get to the Irish Sea, probably. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. So at, at first he gets there, and he finds this ship. They're actually um, taking Irish wolfhounds. Yeah. That was a pretty <laughs> to, interesting to part of the story. To sell in Gaul. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting part of the story. He had no idea where they were going with those. Right. He didn't know. Yeah. I don't think... Could he speak the same language as them? I don't think he could... Well, I that's, know he did at least to the captain, and there's another person he was right. able to communicate with. Right. So I don't. I don't think... But they were heathens. Yes. These were heathen men. Right. I wouldn't call them pirates. They're, I don't know, what are they? Traitors. Traitors, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> T-R-A-D-E-R-S. Yes, not, traitors. Not traitors. Yes. <laughs> not Benedicts. Um, so at first he gets there and the shipmaster says, you're not coming with us, buddy. Yeah. Uh, we don't know where you came from. Um, so they turn him away and Patrick goes away to pray. And as the story goes, no sooner had he finished the prayer that he heard one of the ship's crew calling for him to tell him the shipmaster sought him and it changed his mind. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So he gets on the ship. They go to Gaul. They sell their wolfhounds to whoever. And uh, Patrick actually remains in Gaul for a time and spends some time in a monastery there, Lorinus or Lorinus. Yeah, it's actually down in the French Riviera. It's off of near Nice, mm-hmm. which is, if you look at it in American, it looks like nice. Yes, and if you, I've actually been to that area. Okay. When I was in the Navy, yeah. And near Cannes. <clears throat> yep, that's right. Near which Cannes. looks like Cannes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Cannes. Uh, the site of the film festival. That's where he ends up, and he's he's there for a few years, um, getting some education, until you know, kind of like Paul hearing the call to go over into Macedonia, he hears the voice of God again, who tells him to go back to Britain. He was actually um, very content in his life at the monastery mm-hmm. i think i don't remember how many years it just says a few years in the john barry mm-hmm. john barry is a guy who several uh a couple hundred years ago wrote this i can't remember when he wrote it but he did a lot of research and he, he he's the supposed guy mm-hmm. for saint patrick's mm-hmm. like determining what is real what was not yes um and according to him, it was a few years that mm-hmm. he spent in the monastery, but he had kind of taken a liking to it. Yeah. He had met some friends there who would actually, some compatriots that he met there as well. But yeah, he he was very content. He thought that he was going to go back home to Britain mm-hmm. and that he was going to come back and return to be a, a, a monk. Yep. But then something happened. Yep. Yes, that's when he gets the other vision. <laughs> um, and it's described in similar terms to Paul's vision of Macedonia. So I misspoke earlier, um, and that's when he's being called to go back to Ireland to spread the gospel. Yeah, that was actually an interesting story there. How did that happen? Do you do you remember? No, no, you can tell that part. Okay, so uh, in the dream, uh, as John Barry recounts, and I don't know if this was actually in St. Patrick's uh, 
autobiography. Mm-hmm. But he says that he, an angel appeared to him and he was handed him a letter. Mm-hmm. And in his dream, he began to read the letter and it was an Irish boy who was calling, someone in the Irish tongue, I believe, mm-hmm. was calling to him. Mm-hmm. And he said that he got no further than those first few, a uh, couple of sentences and he awoke and that he was just broken with, mm-hmm. and he was like, this is what I got to do. This yeah. is my destiny. This wow. is what, I'm, I must go do this. So that was a pretty interesting thing. That is interesting. Now, we'll pause I guess take a brief break from Patrick because around almost around the exact same year that Patrick arrived back in Ireland. Yeah. Um, there's another guy. Yeah. Who's commissioned by Cel- Pope Cel- Celestine, Celestine. I guess yeah. you would say. So this is around the year 431, and it might be a little bit grand to call him Pope at this point. Uh, yeah. That was another interesting thing I found. Apparently, at this time, there was no consensual consensus consensus on recognizing the bishop of Rome as the all-overruling... Right. Yes. He wasn't a sovereign at that point. Right. And that's another thing Barry talks about in his Life of St. Patrick book, and which is fascinating to me, because obviously, growing up Roman Catholic, they teach us, oh no, the Pope has been the Pope for... Right. You know, forever, since Peter. Right? Sure. Kinda, yeah. sorta. No. <laughs> not true. Um, and there were several accounts that were given by John Burry in the Life of St. Patrick that talks about... How he was sort of how our coalition of of churches works Mm -hmm. today in that it's like uh, we have an alliance of churches that we kind of fellowship with Mm -hmm. in our church. Right. And so that if there was a situation that needed, was difficult, needed some help in judging how to rightly handle, our pastor could go to to this alliance of of churches and say, hey, this is a situation, brothers. How should we deal with this? Mm -hmm. What What are your thoughts? And then they would provide their advice. And their opinions, and then our pastor, because he's the local pastor, would then decide. Okay, yeah, I'm going to heed that advice or not. Right, right. It was completely up to them, and that was the way it was at this time, at, at which Celestine is the bishop of Rome. Right. So he commissions Palladius to take uh, to go and spread the gospel among the Christians and in the Scots people. It would have said in Latin. Who are in Ireland? Yeah. Right. So the Scots are in Ireland. In, in that Latin telling of it, it's all the same people. Yeah. And actually, one of the main kingdoms at the time was the kingdom of Dalriada, I guess is yeah. the best Gaelic pronunciation I can do. But it actually was mainly based in Ulster, which is now most of Northern Ireland and the eastern part, as well as the western part of what we now call Scotland. Uh, so it kind of spanned the water there and was on both sides right. to some extent. So, um, but everybody was, they were, they were Scots in Ireland and in Scotland you had the Picts. Mm. That's P-I-C-T-S. Yeah. Um, who were, that's another story, but they're interesting also. So Palladius and some people say that, well, maybe Palladius and Patrick are actually the same person. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think so either. And one of the notes is that their ministries were in different parts of Ireland. Right. So uh, Palladius was in, and I'm going to forget the name of the province now because I didn't remember. I think he was in, I want to say Leinster. If that's not correct, then write in and correct me. But the, the, the main point is that they were not in the same area of the country. Right. And so also this is another interesting point uh, kind of before Palladius gets sent. Uh, Palladius was actually uh, given the title of bishop and then sent Mm-hmm. Right, and so at that time, this is a time in which I believe it was about fourteen years in all. It took fourteen years. So Patrick has this vision. He's like, "I am going to Ireland. I'm going to be a missionary to that people. I'm going to convert them, the entire island." Right. So then he goes back to the monastery to get trained, and in that time, he ends up spending fourteen years. Um, and he he was wanting to get ordained as a bishop so that he would have some credi- credibility. credibility. Yeah, he wanted to have credibility. He didn't want to just be seen seen as some fanatic out in a heathen land trying to convert everybody. Right. So he met his first opposition as he was beginning his training. Many of the people tried to dissuade him from doing it. They thought he was foolish, uh, as is often the case mm-hmm. with missionaries. Um, they said his project was rash and that he was unqualified for such a work. Um, but all in all, it took 14 years from the time of the vision to the time of his actual setting upon his task, 
But during that time, as he was seeking to go, Palladius got sent first mm-hmm. by right. Celestine. Yeah. And you'll see, well, I'll, get, I'll read a, I have a quote just a, a little bit further down in reference to a different point, but the, the Irish were not very well regarded. At, they were not considered a civilized people at, at yeah, all. They're called the fighting the Irish for a reason. <laughs> yes. And I mean, that reputation goes back. Two thousand years. Yeah, to they're almost first as con- bad as the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians. Yeah, so not quite. But. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not really. But but it, they they were never conquered by the Roman Empire. Right. They never brought into the empire. Now part of that was as kind of the edge of the, the known world. Those people are like barely human to the yeah. Roman legions. So yeah, like, it was. Want, uh, <laughs> it's pretty far out there compared. Yeah. I mean, the farthest west that there could be right that was the edge of the known world at yeah. the time so patrick is going to literally the the ends of the earth yeah, as far wow. as he knew to to carry the gospel so he meets opposition when he's becoming or getting the training but then when he gets to ireland the other the the, the next opposition is he, the druidic but he finally religion. gets he finally gets ordained as as bishop yes. Palladius comes back and he, he right. considers himself a failure he doesn't really get anything accomplished right and then and then Patrick goes, right? And he they ordain him as bishop, and they send him. Yes, and obviously, his his uh, work in bringing Christianity to Ireland was uh, wildly successful compared yeah. to Palladius, where it and you know it's been regarded as a Christianized nation in um, in some respect ever since then. So yeah. that's a very long time. Now here's an interesting part that I was, is that when he got rid of all the snakes. Oh boy, we got yeah. We'll get to the we'll get to the legendary parts here. <laughs> that's and of course that's one of the more known ones. Um, something I was and I stumbled across this in reading um, Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Um, but Patrick really is one of the the first people on record to speak out adamantly against slavery. Oh wow. And with good reason, because he was yeah. he was there. He was enslaved. Man, come um, on, dude, that's amazing. Like, think about that, just for a moment, mm-hmm. right? I obviously, I don't know that there's been anything as atrocious as chattel slavery in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. I haven't done enough study anywhere else on that subject. Yeah, but this was a man who was a slave. Mm-hmm. He was kidnapped. And then put into slavery yeah. for, I believe, six years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, a number of years. And then his one thought, I mean, that's amazing to me. Yeah. I think I'm going to go, not only am I going to go back and make this, uh, you know, not he's not going to make it, but that he's going to proclaim the gospel to them to save them, to mm-hmm. offer them salvation and redemption. But he also is going to speak out boldly against yeah. slavery. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, I found this, and it's, <clears throat> scholars agree that, Patrick is the genuine author of a letter excommunicating a British tyrant by the name of Caroticus, who had carried off some of Patrick's converts into slavery. Ravenous wolves have gulped down the Lord's own flock, which was flourishing in Ireland, Patrick wrote, and the whole church cries out and laments for its sons and daughters. He called Caroticus's deed wicked, so horrible, so unutterable, and told him to repent and to free the converts. It remains unknown if Patrick was successful in freeing Caroticus's slaves, but within his lifetime, or at least shortly thereafter, the slave trade, or the Irish slave trade, had effectively come to an end. So he's definitely one of, at least one of the first Christians to speak out strongly against yeah. this practice of slavery. But then you also have, I mean, I think you look at the early testimony of Scripture, but then also the early patristics and mm-hmm. their own actions and behaviors with regards to how countercultural they were right. in not killing babies mm-hmm. in being good to their servants or yep. slaves and then not actually treating them harshly, but actually um, helping and seeking their best welfare. And in some cases their release and freedom. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So just an, another part to, to add to his legacy there. <clears throat> okay. Let, let's talk about some legends. Did you hear the one about his, uh, how the Druids started flying? I didn't hear this one. Tell oh, me. man, this is great. So <laughs> apparently he was out there and he was trying to go to this one major Druid who was like in charge of all of all the, the biggest Druid there was. And uh, everybody began to become fearful. And then this Druid who was trying to basically beat back 
Patrick was unsuccessful, so he he started levitating. Yeah. And he like got up really, really high. And that Patrick saw him up in the air and was and began to pray and prayed a prayer. And the guy plummeted to his death, <laughs> which won Patrick an, a, a hearing with the king or ruler of oh, that area. Yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, man, that guy's God is the God I want to follow. Yeah. And so that was how he got in with him. <laughs> so, again, I, I don't know if that was true. I, I can't remember where I saw that. It was on one of the websites I was looking through. Probably, I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. I don't know about that. It's hard to, yeah, with, with some of these um, obviously miraculous claims because, <clears throat> I mean, as Christians – that requires a belief in the supernatural Absolutely. and the miraculous. Mm-hmm. And uh, the God of the Bible is, he does not change. He is the yeah. same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, but when you don't expect to see those things, and especially, you know, as we are now almost, you know, 1,700, 1,600 years later with sources that sometimes are not even written contemporaneously with Patrick, it's, yeah. it's hard to tease out. What's what can be verified and, and what cannot? So, of course, the the most famous one with maybe one of one of the two most famous legends associated with uh, with Patrick are driving the snakes out of Ireland. But there um, were no snakes in Ireland, right? So, you've got one early Latin source at, writing in the third century now. Um, this is Gaius Julius Solinus in his Polyhistor. Um, and he, he writes in this place, he's writing about Hibernia, which was the Roman or Latin designation for Ireland. He says, in this place, there are no snakes. Birds are rare and the people unwelcoming and warlike. <laughs> <laughs> so another description of the warlike Irish people there. But also he's writing in the third century. So that's that's the, the 200s. Yeah. That's at least 100 years before about Patrick was about born. Years, yeah. yeah. Before he so, was So, and he, he's already describing the island as being free from snakes. Right. So, you've got a writer before Patrick saying there's no snakes there. Then, um, a, a writer that might be a little bit more familiar um, is Bede, or uh, the, Bede, Venerable Bede. the Venerable Bede. He's writing in the 8th century in his Ecclesiastical History of England, and he says of Ireland, no reptiles are found there. And no snake can live there, for those snakes are often carried thither out of Britain. As soon as the ship comes near the shore and the scent of the air reaches them, they die. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> which is which is interesting. And uh, are there really no snakes in Ireland? Somebody call us and let us know, because like if that's yeah, true, I, I would want I would want to live there. Yeah, well, I hate snakes. I, yeah, that that part is true. Like there, even like reptile life is is much more oh. limited than what we have here in the United States. So yeah, snakes they don't live there. Bede, writing the 8th century, so this is after Patrick, says, nope, there are no snakes there. Well, what's significant about that? Bede knew about Patrick, and mm. he doesn't mention Patrick right. at all. Right. So if, if there were a, a time to say, and the reason there's no snakes there is because of St. Patrick. I mean, because St. Patrick stood up one day and said, I am sick and tired <laughs> of these snakes <laughs> on my mission field. Right. Not yeah. Really. So you've got two very, two early sources, from right from one from before Patrick was there and one from shortly after he died, neither of whom mentioned anything about the snakes mm. and neither of whom, obviously the one before Patrick couldn't point to him, but the one that comes after him didn't mention it either. Right. And the other thing is, if you stop to think about it for a few minutes, you're like, well, it is an, ir- an island and it's separated from the rest of the continent. So even yeah. if it's highly likely that there w- the, the kind of animals there would be much more limited. So, it's kind of like a... The the coincidence thing, like with Chuck Norris, it's like, oh, Chuck Norris was born in 1944 or something. Yeah. Like, and then the day after he was born, oh. the Japanese surrendered. <laughs> it's like, that was not a coincidence. It was because Chuck Norris was born. <laughs> so maybe not all that surprising that there were no snakes in Ireland at any time. And sorry, Patrick fans, he, he, just, he didn't do it. They just, they just were never there. So what's what's the other one? Well, Whenever you see a picture of Patrick, that he was a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> he he espoused partialism. Yeah. So when you see Patrick in in a lot of uh, your stained glass windows or your books or whatever, he's got the shamrock, which is the three leafed little plant. And as the legend goes, you know he's 
teaching the gospel to these Irish people and you know this Trinity thing is that's it's really difficult, Patrick. Can you try an analogy <laughs> if you if you do the video? And supposedly never do an analogy. No, just don't. don't yeah, don't do it. So you end up a heretic. Supposedly he takes the the shamrock and explains, well, the Trinity is like the shamrock. So you have right. the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're all part of this shamrock. Yeah, no, that's one that's God without parts. Right. So you you very quickly run into heresy there. And uh, again, we'll we'll do a link to the uh, Lutheran satire video of St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. But we are here to vindicate Patrick. Um, <laughs> he was not a heretic. He was not a heretic. Oh, we just ended the show. Oh, man. No. <laughs> um, but there are no contemporary sources that document Patrick using the Shamrock analogy. That sh began to show up no earlier, really, than the 18th century. Wow. So, like dispensationalism oh no wait that was, that was another the 19th century, century. 19th yeah century. you gotta win another another hundred years for that <laughs> but so you're talking uh more than a thousand years after patrick wow. died that this starts to show up so it he didn't do it it just yeah. there was no source no. to saying it did but there is however now this is not this is from the ninth century this is a while after patrick was gone um but it's at least been attributed to patrick how he is supposed to have been explaining the gospel to two daughters of one of the Irish kings. Mm. And this is what he writes about God. He says, He hath a son, co-eternal and co-equal with himself. And the son is not younger than the father, nor is the father older than the son. And the Holy Ghost breatheth in them. And the father and the son and the Holy Ghost are not divided. I desire, moreover, to unite you to the son of the heavenly king, for ye are daughters of an earthly king. Hmm. So you read that, and that explanation sounds... Fairly Athanasian. Yes. Yeah. It, it sounds like the historic creeds of the church, um, a lot more than the analogies that are supposedly... Yeah. So it's like an egg. Yeah. No. no. It's not like an egg. No, it's like water. No. no it's not like it's not water. not like water. It's like a man. It's no. not... No. <laughs> Just don't. don't. <laughs> Just read the Athanasian Creed and say, this is what I believe. I yes. confess that this is true. Right. So, and that is probably exactly what Patrick did. Yes. Because um, he, we have no reason to believe that he had this uh, heretical right. understanding of the Trinity. Right. And thus we have vindicated Patrick from the cruel distortions of Hans Fein yeah. and his Lutheran satire video. <laughs> All right, so that's loot. That's that's uh, Beyonce's done. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk okay. about. Let's we got talk two about, others. Yeah, where are the other ones? So, uh, and we're proceeding in chronological order here. Now, this is a person I I did not know very much about at all. Yeah, I don't think I was able to find very much about this person. And there's there is very little, especially very little that's can easily be verified. So, yeah. um, one of the other three patron, patron saints of Ireland was uh, Brigid of Kildare. And she lived from approximately 451 to 525. And I did check the pronunciation. If you look at it, it's, the, the English spelling is B-R-I-G-I-D. And you might think, well, that kind of looks like Bridget. But it's, it's not Bridget. It's the hard G. So Brigid. Like GIF. Yes, like GIF. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Smack the table. Or, I guess, in the more... Gaelic Irish Gaelic pronunciation could say Briad, um, which I guess is I also read that's how a lot of the places that are named Saint Brides, yeah, um, that's how those came about. So huh. it's the same a derivation of the same name. Um, she's also known as the Mary of the Gale, the Gale being the Gaelic people, mm. and she's said to have been converted under the preaching of Patrick. She was one of those daughters that he was talking to. No, no, <laughs> well. Yeah, there's stories about that. I don't, I don't think she she was not the daughter of a king, but she there are some stories that associated her with some. Oh yeah, that was, that was this kings. is my note. This is the yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the one thing that I was able to find out yeah. about her. And I'm like, man, homegirl, you've got some serious problems. Right. Well, I mean, everybody who's not oh, fiance does. Yeah. <laughs> she just wanted her 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 fair shake. Yeah. So. Um, so tradition says now this I believe was from the Roman Catholics saints, mm -hmm. uh, whatever you call it, the concordance that has all the different listed oh, saints right, yeah. and everything, right? Now, again, even that one was a little bit sketchy to me. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it said that tradition has said that she disfigured her own face 
because she was quite beautiful. Hmm. Um, but she got tired of having to reject suitors that would come up to her, and they wanted to marry her. So she, when she took her first vows as a nun, is when they said that her beauty was restored to her. Hmm. That supernaturally, interesting, the disfigurement went away. That's very interesting. There's it could be like, you know, if, uh, what's the word? Uh, not literal, but figuratively speaking. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. I don't right. know. Right. There's another story, and I don't think I, I put this one in our notes, but uh, it's kind of, it's not so much a suitor as a, almost like a forced marriage. Mm. So she's uh, living with her father, who she was supposed to have been born to a slave woman. But is living with her father. Her mother might have. Uh, I don't remember what happened to her mother at that point. But she has been converted. Um, so she, what she starts doing is giving away her father's property. Right. They say, "Well, I'm not having this. I'm taking you. We're going to the king, and I'm selling him to selling you to him, whether as as a slave, as a wife. We're not right. entirely sure. So he throws her in the wagon or the chariot or what have you." And they go off to see the king. And um, being the good subject that he is, when he goes in to see the king, he lives bring it outside. Doesn't take his sword inside with him because you can't go in to see the oh, king yeah. armed. you right. got to leave your weapons outside. But was he wearing a COVID mask? That I don't know. Yeah, probably, no, probably no sources not. on that one. <laughs> um, while he's inside talking to the king, arranging the sale or marriage or whatever he was doing... Um, Brigitte is approached by, um, you know, a beggar of some sort, and she's sitting there uh, with her father's horse and wagon, and the only thing she has of value is her father's sword. Nice. So she hands it over to this beggar guy, and he runs off, and then the father and the king come back outside, and the father's just indignant. What happened to my sword? And she said, I get, or I guess the king asks her, what did you do with your father's sword? And she says, well, I gave it away. And guess what, buddy? <laughs> I would give away everything you have and your and your whole kingdom too, if it oh, uh, because that's what God has called me to do. Like nice. she, she believed this was her calling to to help the poor and needy. Right. And the king basically said, "Wow, you're too good for me. <laughs> I, we're not we're not proceeding with this marriage sale thing. Yeah. So just take her home, Dad. She's too good for me. Uh, but apparently, the, uh, allegedly, that also led to." the king's conversion. So uh. again, this is one of these stories that is, you know, because they're coming in accounts that are written, you know, centuries later yeah. in some cases, it's really hard to uh, verify. Right. That's pretty funny though. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of the accounts of a brigade are come well after the fact. And there's actually some question among at least some scholars about whether she was a real person. Right. Big part of that is that at the same time in Ireland there is a goddess in the Celtic mythology that was known by the same mm. name. Yeah. Then you've got all these stories of these miraculous happenings, and it's easy to say, well, probably what they did was they just meshed everything together. Right, like Easter. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so there's one of the things that she's famous for is founding uh, a monastery or an abbey at Kildare or. Kildara, I, I think is how uh, yeah. you say it, which yeah. means the Church of the Oak. Um, but the legend is about how she actually acquired the land. Mm. Um, and the story goes that she went to the King of Leinster to petition just to ask for some land. And he says, get out of here, refuses to give her the land. So she goes away from the king. She prays that the king's heart would soften. And she goes back and asks the king, all right, just give me as much land as my cloak will cover. Mm. And the king just laughs at this because, okay, that's ridiculous. You're, you're a tiny little woman. Your cloak is small. If you want that square piece of ground, go right ahead. So Brigid hands over her cloak to four of her helpers that were with her. They each take a corner, and they start walking in opposite directions, north, south, east, and west. And the legend is that the cloak expands, and it just covers many acres of land. Uh, so, it's a Mary Poppins cloak. Yeah, it's a, there you go. <laughs> um <laughs> And supposedly, while well, the king is just so by, impressed by this, well, I, I guess I have to honor, honor what I said I would do. And he's so impressed by the miracle that he's converted as well. Wow. A lot of these legendary stories end that way. Mm. The, the, the saint performs a miracle for some right. pagan king, and then they're all converted at the end. 
Which, um, I mean, we can talk about miracles and their purpose and what they're for and the furtherance of the kingdom and for, I mean, maybe. 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 Yeah. And, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, but we also want to be careful not to engage in what C.S. Lewis called uh, chronological snobbery. Mm. Like, we 21st century Christians know so much better than right. those people back in the 5th century, those poor benighted souls who just didn't know any better and they'd believe any little sleight of hand thing was something supernatural. Yeah. Um, but here's something else to consider, and this is not my source, but... Um, pagans would not have been duped by cosmetic change. Early Irish Christians did not need to appropriate a female deity, nor would they have been particularly particularly interested in trying to. Hmm. So, before we're too quick to say, oh, well, Bridget, Brigid is obviously this legendary Celtic goddess and right. not a real person, you know, examine the sources and, you know, there could be an element of that and we don't necessarily take everything that's written about her at face value and investigate right. it. But, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. So, mention the monastery and that's probably her most lasting contribution to church history. It's, it's pretty interesting that the, uh, the, we're only taking a moment to talk about first backup to Beyonce, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> The there are a lot of women that you see, you know, from in uh, the Church of Philippi, mm-hmm. right? You see the same kind of thing. And then we talked about John Wesley and Charles Wesley and how they had a benefactor who was yes. also a woman who right. was used mightily of God because mm-hmm. of her great wealth. Yeah. And then here, I don't, we don't know how she acquired this, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, doesn't matter. Right. God used this woman and her faith to. Create a monastery. Yep. And that became the center of education. So like yeah. I said before, there weren't these great population centers. You, right. know, you can go to Dublin now, and it's a large city. There was nothing like that at the time in in Ireland in the late 400s, early 500s. It just yeah. didn't exist. Um, it wasn't even a unified country. So as these monasteries are established, they do become kind of a towns into themselves, the closest thing they had to a city. Um, and it was that focus on monasteries that leads to the third person we want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> who is? Col- Columba. Columba. Columba, yes. So he comes. Columnio? Yes. Yeah, and the Irish name. So Columba is kind of the Romanized, Latin? Latinized yeah. name. In Ireland, he's still known as Colum Keel. Um, and he lived from something like December 7th. 521 to June 9th, 597. So with most of these uh, people that have been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, you can take the date of their death as their feast day. Feast day, yeah. Yeah, so uh, with Brigid, it's uh, February 1st. Patrick, obviously, is March 17th. And Columba is June 9th. So what do we know about him, I guess, as far as his early life goes? I think you had something on that. Probably born in Donegal in Ireland mm-hmm. and of royal descent. Mm. Studied at Mulville under St. Finian, which we've mentioned yes. just a bit ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in Leinster at the Monastery of Clonard under another St. Finian. Mm. He was ordained before he was 25 and spent the next 15 years preaching and setting up foundations at Derry, Duro, and Kells. Mm. And that was the, the, the total of my <laughs> research for, for him. Yeah. Um, now, at some point, he leaves Ireland to go to Britain. And w- as with some of the other stories, the details are a little bit uh, un- uncertain. Fuzzy. Um, yeah, a little fuzzy. Um, so the reason that he left is um, in dispute a little bit. In one version, he is involved some in some kind of controversy over a manuscript, possibly a psalter, that was either borrowed or stolen, which might yeah. have been part of the dispute. Um, suppose that he was trying to make a copy of it. And then over That was a family dispute, wasn't it? I think I read. Yeah, I mean I I think that the sources are kinda in a little bit not all over the place. Yeah. Um but just well it could have been this and it could have been that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And they pick one version or the other. And then uh also over the right of asylum. So apparently he goes to copy this book and some other guys come to his defense, and they're going into the church to seek asylum, and mm. the king sends somebody in there to get him, and that was 
you know, a, a, a big, big time violation even at, at that time of this gotcha. right of asylum. So, um, in some accounts, but again, not all, this leads to a battle. Um, and after that, either he was exiled. It's, it's the Irish, of course, it leads to a battle. <laughs> there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a fight. It's like even just recently, right? I was trying to read up, and I didn't get to finish up, but it was I was trying to figure out uh, the whole red and orange and oh yeah, but yeah. like that obviously goes back to. 14th I can't remember. The Middle Ages area, Middle mm-hmm. Age time period, and then all even to the 20th century. Yeah. There's fighting still going on. Oh, yeah. Um, very intense fighting. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that's just what they do. So, for whatever, whether it was a battle or something else, he and he, he's either, again... <laughs> Either he was exiled or he felt so guilty of the bloodshed that he kind of exiles himself. So he gets into uh, this, I guess, prototypical Irish boat called a coracle. It's just basically like a, a canoe-type boat covered with skins. Nice. And he sails across the sea and he lands in what is now uh, Scotland, hmm. um, the Inner Hebrides Islands. So as with... So many other of these Christian figures, the early centuries, there are various traditions and legends that have grown up around Columba. And this was an interesting one. Um, it'll be familiar probably by the time we get to the end of it. But according to this legend, um, in his travels, he comes to a river and he's contemplating how he's going to get across. Uh, but while, while he's doing so, he encounters a group of the local Pict men, again, the Pictish tribes. Um, they were burying a friend who they said they'd been, he'd been killed by some kind of monstrous beast while he was swimming in the river. Um, so the, the legend goes that Columba places his staff across the man's chest, and that brings him back to life. So he resurrects him. Um, then he, he tells one of his fellow monks to get in and swim across the river to the other bank and bring back that small boat over there that we can see on the other bank. So upon hearing this monk splashing in the water... The beast reappears, it roars, it goes after the swimming monk, and everyone on the shore starts shouting to warn the man except for Columba. Columba approaches the shore, he makes the sign of the cross, he invokes the name of the Lord and commands the beast not to touch the man and to leave at once, um, which the beast then did. And upon observing this uh, second miracle, the local men are said to have been converted on the spot, and they were immediately baptized in that very same river, the River Ness, ah. which is surely uh, more famous around the world for the lake out of which it flows, ah. which is Loch Ness. Lake Ness. Yes. Which so, is all that means, right? Lake yes, Ness. Exactly. So the legend is, yes, Columba <laughs> banished the Loch Ness monster from the uh, river. Of course. Thence to reside forevermore in the lake. Allegedly. Nice. <laughs> nice. So Patrick got rid of snakes. Columbo got rid of the Loch Ness the monster. Loch Ness I think monster. he wins this round. <laughs> Supposedly. Um, but of course, these, I mean, it's kind of fun to think about. And it's, you know, an, a neat story. But that's really probably all it is. Yeah. Um, because it, it, you just can't, none of these are, these things can't be uh, historically verified. Right. Um, but that's not why Columbo is significant for church history anyway. Um, so again, most famously, um, what he does is establish a missionary work or a mission abbey monastery type deal on the island of Iona, which is off the western coast of Scotland, uh, on what we now call the Inner Hebrides Islands. Um, he arrived at the island in the year 563, along with a very particular number of companion monks, uh, 12, lots of 12s. And what they're going to do there is set up a, really an entire community for themselves. They're going to support themselves with what they eat, kind of be a launching pad for um, further missions to the Pictish people right across the water, mm. and be a center of learning. So people would come there to get trained in the Bible and in other things as well. So they're basically communist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. The good kind. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> they're communing together. They are communing together. Yeah, exactly. Um, so kind of... It, uh, essential to that that status as a, a learning center was the library and the scriptorium mm. or the copying room. Nice. So if you've ever seen the Book of the Kells, 
There's some kind of cartoon movie that has to do with the Book of the Kells, I think. Now that I think about it. But anyway, um, the Book of Kells is this beautiful, illuminated manuscript. So if you if you can picture the... Um, in, even in our modern Bibles, we'll, at, at the beginning of a book or the beginning of a chapter, we'll have that drop capital letter where oh, the yeah. first letter is yeah, bigger. Yeah. They took that to a whole different level. <laughs> so you've got like a whole page where the first letter is just this intricate, artistic thing. Um, and some of it has, you know, gold inlay and these kind of things. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of thing, and that's not exclusively what they did. Uh, but the Book of Kells is also sometimes known as the Book of Columba. Uh -huh. We don't know that he produced it or that it was even definitely produced on Iona, but it's closely associated with the kind of work that they were doing. Right. Um, along with some other ones called the Lindisfarne Gospels. So Book of Kells, I think, is at the library at Trinity College, Dublin. And you can still see, they put, I think, like two pages at a time on display. But it's kind of it's incredible to think that 1,500 years later, yeah. this thing has survived, and you can still go and look at it. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's extremely remarkable. Um, so mainly what's in there, the, the Book of Kells and the Lindisfarne Gospels, are the Gospels, the four Gospels from the Bible, um, along with some, sometimes some of the epistles, um, some tables of Hebrew names were, were common, and uh, like a like a preface, kind of like an introduction to the Gospel of Mark or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that's not all they were copying. Um, in fact, they carrying on the tr tradition of the Irish countrymen. They included in their copying labors works of Greek, Latin, and some Irish literature. And think about the time period that they're in, the sixth century. Books were a, a rare commodity right. to begin with. Yeah. Um. But under the influence of the Bishop of Rome again, <laughs> um, copying... But not by mandate. But not by mandate, but heavily influenced. Heavily influenced, yeah. Um, the Greek and Latin works, they avoided copying those. Well, this is pagan literature. Why are we going to copy this? Why are we going to copy Homer or mm. Virgil or these things? Right. We're going to devote ourselves to copy the Bible. So the fact that these Irish monks... Um, you know, at Iona and at other places, we're copying these things. We're really preserving this yeah. canon of ancient classical literature. But that's not all they did. They they did not just confine themselves. Again, like I said before, they were a mission work. Right. So they're they're not just copying, um, sitting inside, living among themselves. They sent people out. I mean, especially to um, Scotland. Yeah. But then also really across Europe, and there's a really neat map in Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, where it shows all of these places where um, people who either were closely associated with Iona or were sent out directly from there, all across Europe, really from northern England all the way down to southern Italy. You can see wow. just a path of cities and towns and monasteries that they established. Um, over the course of a couple centuries. Um, and this is really the main thesis of, of Cahill's book, is that this is how the Irish, when he says how the Irish civil, saved civilization, this is how they did it. Mm. And just a short excerpt from near the end of his book, Cahill writes, Latin literature would almost surely have been lost without the Irish, and illiterate Europe would hardly have developed its great national literatures without the example of Irish, the first vernacular literature to be written down. Beyond that, there would have perished in the West not only illiter not only literacy, but all the habits of mind that encourage thought. And when Islam began its medieval expansion, it would have encountered scant resistance to its plans, just scattered tribes of animists ready for a new identity. Hmm. Because you got to think about what's going on at the time. And most people, when you talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, they'll point to AD 476, which was when the last, you know, officially designated uh, Roman emperor was deposed right. uh, by the invading Germanic tribes. But this had really been going on for a century leading up to that and would continue afterwards. And this is when you do enter what's, what are commonly known as the Dark Ages. 
um, the Bishop of Rome would have had a significant library for himself, and you'd have other noble libraries, but books became even more of a rare commodity than they were. Um, so you've got the Germanic tribes who they might find a book, but if it's one of these jewel-encrusted, illuminated manuscripts, they right. don't read Latin, but uh, that's shiny. Rip off the cover and make right. off with it as, you know, that's my loot yeah. from, from sacking Rome. Um, so countless books would have been destroyed. You see a same similar phenomena in, um, when the Viking raids began right. in England and it in It served Ireland no purpose well. for them. Right. And it would, have, it would have benefited them nothing because they couldn't read it. It's in a right. language they didn't understand. And it's kindling. Yeah. To them. Yep. Exactly. Sort of how whenever I get heretical books, <laughs> it's good. For, it's I never good know for that. when I'll need to start a fire. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, the point that struck me was here's Columba, who started this work, and is helping um, Christian learning and just learning in general spread yeah. it, be kept across Europe. And uh, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the First Crusade back on episode 11, I think. Yeah, Yeah, a while ago. A little over a year ago. Um, (coughs) This is right around the time that Islam is on the rise. It's going to start sweeping west. Yeah. So I think the point that, I mean, people will quibble with Cahill over whether he really supports his thesis about how important the Irish were. Um, But the point about Islam. I think is is a significant one because yeah. if they do show up there in uh, Central Europe and you've just got all these you know Germanic uh, tribes that the Romans would have called the the, the barbarians, right? Um, you know why they call them barbarians? Why? Because <laughs> they didn't speak Latin. They did not speak Latin. <laughs> they did not speak Greek, or maybe it was that they did speak. No, they didn't speak Greek. Yeah. So uh, Greeks, I believe, were the ones that began to call them, right. Like, coined the term barbarians mm-hmm. because to them if I, I, you, I'm, I can't pronounce Greek very well yeah. but if you look at some of the Greek it's very phonetic mm-hmm. for each of the letters that are there right but for the other languages that they would hear they would hear these other people speak and to them it sounded like they were just saying bar 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 they called them barbarians because yeah. that was what they sounded like yeah. they sounded, they, your language sounds like nothing yeah, yeah. to them it sounds like gibberish to exactly yeah, yeah. So jabronis, <laughs> I mean, probably a modern day equivalent. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's Columba in particular is significant in that way. Um, but even even more than role. that, you see, we um, Doctor. Oh my goodness, we just talked with him, Doctor Tom Nettles. When we talked to him, he talked about the providence of God mm-hmm. working and in, in, in causing the split between the Bap- Northern Baptists and the Southern mm-hmm. Baptists. Now, there were, con- there were things that we can obviously look at and say, nah, that was, this was bad, this shouldn't right. have happened. And, but God was using mm-hmm. that, and he preserves his church through the actions of yeah. humans. Yeah. And we're, we're all, we are all wicked, and we all sin, and are not always properly motivated. Mm-hmm. So I think it's awesome. It's awesome to look at these things, these little small things from history, and see, look at how God used Mm-hmm. Columba, this little known yeah. person in preserving these ancient mm-hmm. works. Yep. So maybe, um, I think St. Patrick's Day is kind of, it's 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 a very different thing in the United States than it is Sort of like Cinco de Mayo. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the anniversary of the Battle of Puebla. Yeah, sure. that's right. Um, Where we beat the French. <laughs> oh, I say we because I'm a Mexicanish descent. <laughs> yeah. So now, obviously, us Americans get to drink margaritas and eat tacos or something. Hey, the I don't way know. I see it is they celebrate my culture by giving money to my people. <laughs> and I'm okay way, with that. That's a good way to look at that, it. That, it's preparations, right? No, 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 no. no. Let's not open that can of worms. Not yet. But say all that to say, yeah, um, the uh, St. Patrick's Day in the United States is kind of like generalized Irish-American heritage. Yeah, wear day. green. Wear green. Why? Why wear green? Drink green beer. Yeah, gross. Why? Yeah, wear the little hat. I don't know. Because um, of leprechauns, obviously. Yes. <laughs> but maybe, maybe next year, because we're recording this in May, maybe next year on March 17th, you'll have something to, hopefully you're not out at the bar. Right. <laughs> but if you're having a some kind of 
occasion to say something about St. Patrick's Day, maybe some of this information will creep in and say, hey, actually, for us Christians, even, there is reason to remember what some of these people living in Ireland 1,700 years ago. Yeah, it was pretty happened. remarkable. It's amazing yeah. what they did. Yeah. And you should wear orange. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can wear green, too, but I mean... <laughs> There's a lot to go in there. We'll have to go into that in a separate episode. That's a, there's a yeah, lot that's there. a whole different episode. Yep. All right. This has been fun. Yeah. It's been a while. Been a little while. But we got to schedule. We got another. We got another episode coming. Yes. Very soon. Yes. I think, and we just got to set that date up. We're gonna have mm-hmm. a wonderful interview. Going to be talking about something that uh, one of our listeners requested us talk about, and so we happen to know someone who is an expert in that time period, and so we're gonna have an interview with him, and we're just gonna have a conversation about. This topic. This topic that you'll find out about later. <laughs> you'll have to come back. <laughs> yes, and it won't be it won't be two months in between Absolutely episodes not. this time. Yeah. But uh our our extra stout Guinness was very good. Yes. And uh our next topic is no there's nothing that we can drink for that. Nope. Just have to drink some water. Some water. That sounds good. Yeah. Water is hydrating. Okay. <laughs> Alright guys, well thanks for stopping by. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless you.